Wonderful to begin our time together in prayer and in song this morning, and hopefully that encouraged your heart already today. Well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles, if you would, and go to Acts chapter 20, will be our main scripture text this morning, and then paragraph 7, chapter 26 of the church. And again, it is good to be back here on the Lord's Day. Of course, we were here on Wednesday evening, but uh, good to be back on the Lord's Day. And again, thankful uh, for the time away. And again, thankful for uh, Tom and Skyler willing to step up and teach in my absence. Certainly thankful for them. And uh, thankful that uh, we have uh, men who are able to do that. It is not an easy task. It is a difficult task to be uh, given the responsibility to teach the Word. And so I'm very, very thankful for that. I want to begin uh, by reading the text in Acts 20. And we're going to begin in verses 28 And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Now, of course, when we look at these texts, we're not reading the entire chapter. So we're not getting the entirety or the full context of uh, the the passage. uh, But it will uh, go with exactly what we're dealing with this morning. Uh, Beginning there in verse 28, it says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember, that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. Uh, This is often referred to as uh, Paul's farewell to the church at Ephesus. And he is giving them closing admonitions or closing warnings. And it's very interesting to me that as he gives these warnings, he is giving warnings primarily based upon what was going to happen after he was removed from uh, that particular congregation. Uh, He, even the very last part of that, verse 38, sorrowing most of all, this struck me this morning, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake. Paul uh, sorrowed mostly for the words that he spoke about, especially with regard to after his departing, grievous wolves would enter in. And then also in verse 30, that of your own selves, men would arise speaking perverse things. Now, uh, this is a frightening thought because he's dealing with the reality that after his departure, after this space of time, Uh, grievous wolves. Uh, He doesn't mean actual wolves. He means people who are there to fleece God's people, those who are there to deceive, to disrupt, and ultimately to destroy. He says they will creep in. They will come from the outside. Now that's concerning enough. 
But what's most concerning, and I think probably what Paul was most concerned about, uh, was that of your own selves shall men arise. He says, within the very body in which I am leaving, I'm departing from, there will be people who will rise up who will speak perverse things. Perverse things don't just mean profanity like things we think of in our day. Uh, it means things that are contrary to the doctrines that were being taught. In other words, people within those congregations would rise up and they will actually speak perverse things with the intent of drawing disciples away. Now, that is a common fear it is a common fear of anybody uh, who is in leadership of any local church. A pastor or elders in those congregations are deeply concerned about the realities of what Paul was talking about here. This is not just reserved for the church at Ephesus. This is an issue uh, that is to be considered and to be thought upon. Now, of course, Paul, uh, in his authority... Uh, was given and granted power by God. Now, we do need to keep in mind that Paul uh, was granted this apostleship. Now, uh, we do not have apostles in our day and age. A man who calls himself an apostle is a phony. He's a fraud. He's false. There are no, need, there are no apostles. There's no need for apostles. Uh, the apostles were given for a particular time, especially in the establishment of these churches. But Paul did have the authority of an apostle. Now, we need to keep that in mind this morning when we deal with the subject of the power and the authority of the local church. This apostleship was granted to Paul by God. And you'll notice that in verse 38, he gives a... We don't take this word seriously enough. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a mistake in the scriptures. I'm not implying that at all. But the word take heed is not just take a casual look at. It's not just... Uh, be aware of. It is to be on your strongest diligence and be on guard. That with everything you have, you should be guarding and taking heed unto yourselves and to the flock. Now, primarily, Paul was addressing the elders that were being left there, the ones that were being left behind. And he says, I want you to take heed and to the flock. Notice, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. No elder, no pastor is that by his own authority or by his own granting. He's granted that by the Holy Spirit of God. A man cannot stand up and declare himself without the authority of the Holy Spirit and say, I am a leader of a church. I am an authority in a church. I, I am going to be an elder. I'm going to be a pastor. He has to be appointed and authorized by the Holy Spirit. It is one of those great mysteries. Any person can stand up and say, I'm a pastor, I'm an elder, but God is the one who actually appoints. And because God actually appoints, that's where the power and the authority to carry out the office comes in. Now, primarily that's going to be our target this morning, is talking about the power and the authority of the local church as is contained in the word of God. Uh, one of the, 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 the grand issues that's, that's taking place in the church today, and sadly it has been taking place in the church for centuries, is the abuse of power and the abuse of authority by the local church. Now that local church, when I use that term, of course I'm speaking of churches like ours, but I'm also talking about uh, large denominational structures that are claiming authority and power over people or over individual uh, congregations. Uh, we are not part of a quote-unquote convention. Uh, we are not under the structure or the hierarchy of a greater power. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, we never will be. 
We're not going to be part of that. That's not the biblical structure. Every local church is autonomous. Every local church is to be independent and to have its own pastors and elders serving at each one of those locations. That's the biblical pattern. But within that, there are these instructions that are given. Now, Paul, as he was leaving, he gives a couple of very key words about power and authority. Notice he says that there should be great heed taken. He also says that you need to take heed and to the flock. You're to be looking out for the flock and understanding that it is the Holy Ghost that made you an overseer. And then notice this, to feed the church of God to feed. The feeding is to care for. It is to take by the authority given by God to oversee, to feed the flock of God. Now, oftentimes we look at the word feed and we think about that just means Bible teaching or that just means instruction. Certainly that's a part of it. But feeding also means care. It means the oversight. It means to take the oversight of that flock. But remember this, And this is so important. The church of God. And I don't know if you mark in your Bibles, but that's really important. The church of God. This is not our church. This is not my church. This is God's church. Man makes terrible mistakes when he says, well, here's what's going on at my church. I will tell you, I have have slipped up and I've done it and I'll probably do it again where I use that term. My church. I don't mean it the way it sounds. But he says, I want you to take heed because there are some things that you need to be aware of. And he says, remember this, which he hath purchased with his own blood. I could never claim ownership to this body because I have not sacrificed my own blood for the sake of it. I've not given up my life for the sake of the church. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ did. Christ gave up his life to save his church. This is his body. So Paul was deeply concerned about what was going to happen. Of course, in verse 27, again, we didn't get the whole context here. He says, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Well, part of the counsel of God is with regard to the role and the power and the authority of the local church. Now, this morning, we'll be dealing with it in a general sense. Next week, paragraph number eight, we'll be dealing with each church and what it's to consist of with regard to offices. We'll deal with pastor, elders, deacons. We'll start dealing with that next week. This this morning is primarily what power and what authority does the local church actually have? Let's look at paragraph seven in the confession. He says, to each of these churches thus gathered. Now, this is important. Notice even the confession writers were making a very grand assumption that churches would be gathered together. A church is a church, especially when it gathers. Remember, we cannot be part of the universal invisible church, but we are part of the visible church that is gathered today. That's what is happening this morning. It is the church that's gathered. According to his mind declared in his word. So the church gathers together according to God's way, God's mind. Has God given us clarity in the structure of a church in the scriptures? Clearly. You don't have to go to any other book to find out how should the church be structured and how should the church operate other than the scriptures themselves. 
That's where the, that's where the authority comes. He hath given all that power and authority. The same one who declared his mind in the Scriptures is the same one that gives authority. He doesn't say, this man that I'm going to put over that congregation is where the power comes from or where the authority comes from. No, he says, it's the power that I've given to you. The power that I have given, which is in any way needful, another key thought here, for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline. Now you can see what the confession writers were dealing with here. They were narrowing this scope of power and they were narrowing this authority down to the worship and discipline of the church. Now this is where the abuse of power begins. We've started in this broad spectrum of God's mind being revealed in the scriptures. And we've moved it to the place now where he says he's given power and authority to the things that are needful for carrying out worship and carrying out discipline, which he, God still, hath instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. This is an extremely clear paragraph. The confession views, and by Scripture, views each local church as having power and authority that's been granted by God and given anything necessary to carry out the work of worship and discipline. So the confession tells us what? Tells what the Scriptures teach us. That every local church is directly accountable to God. He who grants the authority and the power to carry out those things, that's who the church answers to. We don't answer, for example, to the Southern Baptist Convention. We're not part of the Southern Baptist Convention. At the current state of the Southern Baptist Convention now, I wouldn't get us within 100 miles of that right now. Not right now, but I wouldn't even in the future. It's, 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 a, it's an organization that's there, but it should not have any authority over the local churches. And sadly, that's what it has become. Each church is directly accountable. That means we will, as a church, we are directly accountable to God. I can't put the blame on anything that happens here on any other local congregation and say, you know, we failed in carrying out power and authority properly because this church over here made us do it or this big convention told us to. We have to give direct account. We're directly accountable to he who has given the authority. So we are, we are accountable to Christ and his commands that are revealed in Scripture. Period. Okay, that's where it comes in. Again, I try to remember, remind us of this. The confession is not the ultimate authority. The confession is a summary of what the Bible teaches. But we don't say our authority is the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Our authority is the Scriptures. That may sound like splitting hairs, but that's distinctively important because it's completely different. So with that, as each church gathers, each church, which has been established by God, is now gathered and authorized to carry out and accomplish God's revealed purposes. The church is to carry out God's purposes, not our purposes, not man's purposes, not even society's purposes. 
which is becoming the hotbed of controversy. That is, the church's main purpose to carry out social things or to carry out God's purposes within the church. It's the latter. Now, a church is carrying out God's commands will be very concerned about what's going on in society, but that will not be its main goal. There are many churches who are, who are sacrificing and giving up their power and authority as churches by submitting themselves to society instead of remembering their accountability to God. We are not accountable. Again, this may get me in a bit of trouble. We are not directly accountable to the state of Ohio. Not directly. We're not directly accountable to Clark County. We're directly accountable to God. Now, there will be situations that will bring us to a place where we will have to say, which authority will we act upon? We saw that in the last few years. But never at any point were we acting under the authority of someone else. We were acting under the authority of the church and what was best for the church in those moments. But power and authority, just those two words alone, have been the stumbling block of entire nations. Who has the power and who has the authority and what does that power mean and what does that authority? Does it have limitations? All human power, folks, has limitations. All authority, humanly speaking, has limitations. The only one without any limitations on power and authority is God himself. But when we think about these things, we have to understand that each local church is responsible to discern the mind and the will of God as declared in the scriptures. What God declares in his word, that's what we're accountable to. We're accountable to him, and our accountability includes obedience to do his will. That's the purposes. Now, we have already seen here in Acts 20, we're seeing in the confession writers, and there's a number of those uh, particular uh, passages that are footnoted. Uh, all of the passages that are footnoted in the paragraph uh, basically are and they're encompassing the entire paragraph. And the very first one, Matthew 18, deals with the matter of church discipline, which we'll get to. But even though the church has been granted power and authority from God, all human power and powers have limitations. The pastor and elders of any local church do not have unlimited authority or unlimited power to do as they please. Now, folks, I would love to tell you I've never seen this happen, but I see this happen way too often where pastors and elders are way, way extending their power and their authority into the lives of people where they have absolutely no business being in. Now, this has caused a little bit of, it's caused a little bit of friction between people. It's caused friction between churches. It's caused friction between churches and government and churches and society and churches and community. It's caused a lot of friction because here the church has got this God-given power and this God-given authority, but how that power and how that authority is being used is where the problem comes in. One of the great areas of abuse in the church has been among the leadership of those churches. The abuse of power often does not begin, not all the time, but does not normally begin within the congregation. 
It begins with the leadership of those churches. Pastors or elders. In some cases, deacons, and and this is amazing to me, there are still what are called deacon-run churches. Deacons are never in Scripture to be the leaders of the church as far as exerting the power and authority over what that church does. But there are churches that have such deacon board power that the deacons alone could remove a pastor or an elder just by a word. Well, that's not the proper structure. We're going to learn that over the next few weeks, what the proper structure is. But I'm giving you this example to say that this has to be in the right order. The power and the authority that's happening, has to under, we have to understand that one of the great areas of abuse in the church has been among the leadership of churches. Now, it's not just within church itself, but also the abuse of power by leadership into the realms that are dealing with matters outside of the church. The abuse of power begins, no matter what society says, no matter what we think it is, the abuse of power always begins by man overreaching his authority, whatever authority that is. So how would we abuse power and authority as a church? By overreaching the authority that God gives us. Who gives the authority? God gives the authority. There are warnings throughout Scripture to the leadership of a church to not lord over the flock. There's way too much lordship happening. There's way too much, this is my way or the highway. This is, this is my God-given authority to tell you what to do. No, it's not. There are authority that is given by Scripture to say, thus saith the Lord. We would do much better if we would just quit trying to say, well, I have the right to do this, I have the power to do this, I have the authority to do this, and just say, here's what God's Word says. Here's what God's Word says. Here's what the Word of God says. See, we've mingled things for so long, some churches have lost sight of the reality of where does the real power and authority come from. And churches have begun to hire very powerful personalities in order to exert that power. That's the last qualification you should be looking for. If if your first qualification is, I want the most powerful figure, your church is going to be in big trouble. Because if you think that man's not going to exert that and lord over you, you're in a lot of trouble. But it doesn't just come from the obvious. A little bit of power and a little bit of authority, if it's not handled properly, will turn even the weakest of men into a lord. Folks, it is, it is proven throughout history that unchecked power and authority will lead to problems. It always has. So why do we think the church is exempt from that? Oh, well, that's the church. They can have unchecked power within. That pastor and the elders have unchecked power. No, they don't. They're all, they are checked by the authority of what God says they can have. So really, in this paragraph, there are three essential truths that we're going to look at. Now, how many of these we covered this morning, we'll see. But I want to give you these headings, and, and some of these are a bit lengthy, but you can, you can get the, the gist of these. The first great essential truth that's being taught here is that each local church has all the power and authority necessary to carry out its mandate and its functions. 
Okay, each local church has all the power and authority necessary to carry out its mandate and functions. I heard recently, and this is, this, this is a real true statement, a, a leader of a church said, we need, for example, we need the Southern Baptist Convention to help us authoritatively and powerfully carry out our mandate and our functions. No, you do not. No, you do not. You've already gone the wrong way when you've said, I need the Southern Baptist Convention to have the authority to carry out the mandates and the functions. Each one of the local churches already has all necessary. We'll talk about that in a minute. Secondly, that power and authority does not mean that local churches can do anything they want or wish or that every decision they make is authoritative in God's sight. For example, just because the pastor says it or the elders say it doesn't make it right. And I'm saying that to you as a pastor. I hope you understand where I'm coming with this. It doesn't mean it's authoritative and it doesn't mean I'm right. I am fallible. I sometimes have bad judgment. Do you? Do you sometimes have bad judgment and make bad decisions you wish you wouldn't have done? Pastors and elders are not exempt from this. The sad thing is, is sometimes the pastors or elders make a mistake in judgment and they lose the pulpit because of that. Now, if a man is intentionally trying to fleece you, he's a grievous wolf, that's different than a man who suddenly makes a mistake in judgment. That's different. I got a thousand decisions over my life as a father and a husband. I'd go back and redo if I could. That's the way life is. But we need to understand that it doesn't mean that a local church can just say, because we're a church, we can do this. Because we're a church, we have the authority to do this. Third heading, the local church is authorized by Christ himself to respond to the presence of false teaching, immoral or disorderly conduct, or divisive behavior. Now this is where we do see very clear that within the body of Christ, within a local congregation, even down to that level, that the local church has full authority to respond to false teaching, to immoral or disorderly conduct or divisive behavior within that congregation. That's the issue we'll deal with of church discipline, which is also mentioned not just in this paragraph, but also in paragraphs 12 and 15. So these are the three main headings. And so with what Paul was saying when he was leaving Ephesus, And even back again in verse 31, he said, Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn every one of everyone night and day with tears. Now, oftentimes I've heard this preached in a very evangelistic way. And that verse is used as the warning and winning of souls. And I understand it. But the context he's saying, it's directly related to beware that after my departure, grievous wolves are going to come in and people are going to rise up within you. And he says, for three years, I warned you about this. Folks, I'm all for the gospel getting out, but we got to stop taking Bible out of context and not understand that's not what he was talking about at that present moment. He's saying, I'm warned you for three years about grievous wolves and about trouble rising within your congregation. I did it with tears. 
It broke the heart of Paul to think about that congregation at Ephesus after his departure being destroyed by wolves from the outside and perverse people from the inside who would intend to draw people away. So this authority that's necessary to carry out the mandate and the functions. We've talked about this already. There is no need for a denominational church structure or, as we've learned, a pope to give authority to a local church. Ultimately, every Catholic parish gets its ultimate authority from what the pope says. That's where they claim their authority. Well, the pope said it, so we have to take that on. When the pope changed his stance against gay marriage, the Catholic church as a whole had to change its stance. That's their authority structure. The Pope is the ultimate authority in their false structure. But each local church has been given the authority to carry out. Paul, in Acts 20, verse 32, committed the Ephesian elders to God. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. He committed the Ephesian elders to God and his word, not to the structure or the convention. He was speaking to those elders of those churches, that church that was being left behind, and he said, this is where the authority comes from. The power and the authority that's exercised in the church is Christ's power. The authority that the church has is to the extent of what is commanded and given according to the mind of God which has been declared in his word. So if the word of God declares it as authority and power, then we can claim that. Outside of that, we cannot. Now again, remember, just because someone in power says it, someone with authority says it, doesn't mean it's right. Folks, I'm so serious about this, that your answer, if somebody says to you, why do you believe what you believe? Your answer should not be to them because my pastor said so. Do you all understand what I mean? That's how I'm, I'm, I'm as serious as a heart attack when I say this. It is not, it is not me or any other elder, or what any other person says. I believe this is because this is what the Word of God teaches, not because my pastor said so. I can't tell you how many churches, that's their ultimate authority, they said because my pastor said so. Now we know there's principles in Scripture, and Paul himself says, as I follow Christ, you can follow me. But Paul would have never wanted you to say, because Paul said so. No, because God says so. That is an important distinction. So in a sense, the power and the authority of a church is essentially a spiritual power. Again, we are, we are often, we put ourselves in a corner and we think about everything from a human structure. It's because it's what we live. We're humans. We see human structure. We see human authority. We see human power. And we say, okay, let's take that and now let's plug that into the church and let's replicate what's being done out there instead of understanding that the power and the authority of the church is a spiritual thing. The more we understand the spiritual aspect of this, the more we see the power and the authority that's actually given. If you look over at John 18, 36, I want you to notice the Lord's words here. 
And even the Lord himself said this. When he's standing before Pilate. Now this, this might seem to you uh, to not be a pivotal answer to a question that Pilate asked. But if, if you look at, at, let's begin in verse 33 to get a little bit more of the context here. This is Jesus standing before Pilate. And Pilate enters into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself? Or did others tell it thee of me? Jesus in his masterful way is responding to Pilate saying, Are you asking this question because you know it yourself or because someone told you this? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, and this is so key, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Do we actually believe that the kingdom that we are a part of is not of this world? The church is not here to conquer kingdoms. It's not here to conquer government. It's not here to overrule, overthrow, rebel against everything. Our kingdom is not of this world. Now we have to live in this world and we have to respond to the things in this world. But we've got to be very careful to understand that this kingdom, this power, and this authority is not in the sense of what we just look at from a human structure. For example, the church does not have the power of the state. We also do not have the power of the United States government. Right? The church, this local church, let's be very personal this morning. I do not, this church, no matter how many elders, pastors we have, no matter how many boards we have, we do not, we are not authorized in any way, shape, or form to legislate civil or criminal law. Now stop and think about that for a moment. We have no authority to legislate civil or criminal law in any way, shape, or form. I see churches trying to do it all the time. More than you would care to know. I do not have the authority to levy a monetary fine against you. I don't have the authority to say, you know what? Because of your lack of faithfulness, I'm fining you $1,000. Or a crime you commit civilly or criminally, crime, in society and say, well, now here's our punishment. I don't, we don't have the authority to do that. I could say that to you and you have, no, you have no responsibility to respond to that. I also do not have, the church does not have the ability to execute civil or criminal punishment. We are not an arm of the government. You'd think churches would get this, but they don't. But also, the church, even this local church, does not have the ultimate authority in your home. I want you to ponder that for a moment. I do not, this church does not have the right to dictate to you how to parent, how to be a husband, how to be a proper wife outside of what the, what the authority of Scripture says. I don't have the ability to legislate to you what you must do or what you must be. I can only declare what the Bible says. This is what a husband should be. This is what a wife should be. This is what parents should be. But it's not my authority to tell you that. I'm not authorized, the church is not authorized, to discipline your children the way that you are authorized to do. 
Now, if you have a problem with your child, you can bring your child and we can talk to that child, but I'm not going to carry out the discipline. I'm not going to look at them and say, you know what, I think you need to ground them for a month. You're the parent. You're the parent. We don't have the authorization to discipline children or even ultimately to determine matters of domestic concern. We do not have the authority to tell you what you must do. All we can say is here's what the scripture says about this particular aspect of your life. You know, it's the very thing that the, it's the background of what John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress about was the overreach of the government telling him what he could and could not say and do. That was the background of writing Pilgrim's Progress. They said, you can't preach Christ. He said, I will preach Christ. He said, all you got to do is stop preaching Christ. We'll let you go home to your family. He said, no, then I'm going to keep preaching Christ. He spends 12 years in prison writing that book because he said, I have the right to preach the gospel. And by the way, you are authorized to preach the gospel. You have the power and the authority to go out these doors and preach the gospel 24 hours a day, seven days a week and cannot be restrained in doing that. But we get very, very confused when we start getting into matters of ultimately, what can, what can, a, what can a pastor or, or elder say? It's the power and the authority of the church. The churches that are authorized truly by God are the composed of true disciples who do believe and are obeying and have given themselves up to the Lord and to one another by the will of God in professing subjection. In other words, this is voluntary. There is nobody at this church that's being held against their will. Not a single one of you. Not a single one that will come in in a few moments is being held against your will. Nobody was forced to come here. Nobody is forced to stay. I've seen the abuse of that in more ways than what you ever would care to know. Where the church overextends its boundary, overreaches its authority, and moves into areas it shouldn't be into. The power and the authority is the authorization of Christ, and that power and authority is only made effectual by the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In other words, without the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no authority, there is no power. A church that has an unbelieving, quote-unquote, pastor or elder at the helm has absolutely no power and no authority at all, not even to carry out the ordinances of the church. There's no such thing as an unbelieving church member. There's no such thing as an unbelieving pastor. There's no such thing as an unbelieving elder. They do not exist. The presence of the Holy Spirit is within the individual. So what is needful for carrying out the will of God. As the church obeys the mind of God that's declared in the word, they find that we are more than sufficiently equipped to do the will of God. If churches would be more concerned about doing the will of God than overreaching and extending beyond the will of God, we would have far less problems in our churches. There tends to be an overemphasis now on over outside the church instead of carrying out the will of God within the church. Where we're more concerned now about things externally. And again, I think if things are in proper order, a properly functioning church will be concerned about society. They will be concerned about people that are dying without Christ. There will be an intentional proclamation of the gospel. 
All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped or thoroughly furnished for every good work. So this authority and power, every local church has what's necessary to carry out the mandate and the functions. Secondly, it does not mean that local churches can do whatever they want or that every decision is authoritative in God's sight. God has provided his word to guide and direct his church, which is completely sufficient for every situation that church is going to encounter. Churches need to take care, take heed, to understand and know and implement the word of God. Truly, the modern church is a corporation in disguise. Churches are now being established as corporations. It is sad. I mean, even down to titling. Now the churches aren't pastors and elders, they're presidents and vice presidents. They're chairmen. They're chiefs. What are we doing? What's the point? You know what they're doing? Corporation, by its nature, carries with it a level of power and authority. If the, if the president of the corporation you work for says something, the whole company tends to listen and says, well, the president said, so it must be. You know what's happening? Because these churches are losing grip. They're losing grip on people. And what they're doing is they're using everything they can to try to hold people inside their little box because they're deathly afraid of losing them. They're not structured like a church. They're structured like a corporation. This is not a corporation. This, this, this little church is not a corporation. And... This authority, churches, should be concerned about implementing the word of God, not what the local corporations are doing. The church is not empowered by man. The church is empowered by the Spirit. Folks, there's no greater power on this earth than the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus Christ himself is not on this earth anymore. Almighty God is not on, on this earth in that sense. It's the Holy Spirit's presence that's empowering and calling and converting. You don't need man's structure to demonstrate you're in control or you're in authority or you're in power. We don't see the Apostle Paul ever putting in place man's way of government. We see words that it is the word of God is what thoroughly equips when he's telling Timothy those great truths. It's profitable. So the church is empowered by the spirit and is adequately supplied for carrying out the order of worship and discipline. But the church is not empowered to do whatever it pleases or whatever we just call the best thing. We're empowered to obey the word which reveals commands and rules for the due right of the exertion of those things, which is what the confession says. 
Now, thirdly, and we'll deal more with this, so I'm not, I'm not skipping over this, but there's an entire paragraph on church discipline, so we're going to deal with this more in depth. But this third heading is that the local church is authorized by Christ to respond to the presence of false teaching, immoral or disorderly conduct, or divisive behavior. This is the issue of church discipline, and it's first mentioned here, and then it's also in paragraph 12 and 15. But in Matthew 18, verses 17 through 18, the local church is the final voice of authority in church discipline. There is no appeals court. So when you apply the rules of church discipline, and we're going to learn about that, when you apply those rules, if it comes to the place where an individual, because of the discipline that that church is carrying out, that person is not brought to repentance. That person is not brought to a corrective behavior. That person is not, they, uh, the church is authorized. Again, we don't use this word in our Baptist churches a lot. To excommunicate that, to separate themselves from that individual and no longer welcome them into that congregation unless there is repentance, which begins the process of reconciliation. Church discipline is all but gone in our churches today. It's all but gone. Because people are afraid of offending. You realize if you don't deal with it, if you don't deal with the discipline that needs be, that needs to be done, your church is in a dangerous place. You can't just simply ignore it. Now again, we'll learn when we get to Matthew 18 that there are situations where there is no time frame put on this. How long do we go to that brother or that sister and continue this process of talking to them and taking a witness with us? How long is it till we tell it to the church that this person is refusing to repent? The Bible doesn't give very specific dates and times on those things. But we do see that the the final authority is the church in that matter. When we ask what are the scriptural commands and rules for discipline, we think of uh, passages like Hebrews 12, uh, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, and even as we're studying, begin the study on Wednesday nights about the book of Revelation, there's church discipline all over Revelation 2 and 3 when they start talking to the churches about how to deal with these things in your church. So this paragraph, in conclusion this morning, this paragraph, which agrees with, remember we talked about the Savoy, uh, the Savoy Confession. It was, had the, the, the Baptist Confession of Faith took a lot of those church polity uh, rules and thoughts and put those together. It asserts local church autonomy and independence. Our Baptist forefathers could not identify in Scripture any ecclesiastical structure that was built over the local church that, is, that intervenes between the local church and Christ. You can't point to me one thing in Scripture that says there's supposed to be a, an organization between the local church and Christ. Often people bring up the Jerusalem Council. I've got that covered already, so we'll deal with that. But that's not the Southern Baptist Convention. I've heard that too. So... In paragraph 4 of this chapter, chapter 26 told us that it's Christ who's the head of the church. In other words, the local church is aligned with the rule of Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. Christ exercises power and authority over the universal church, including all the local churches all over the world, 
Each church is indwelt by the Spirit because its members are saved. Members is accountable to Jesus Christ for his or her obedience to the word. In Romans 14, I encourage you to read this maybe sometime today, but in Romans 14, Paul was dealing with individual exercise of liberties, and you probably know, you're familiar with that at least, when uh, he was talking about people that are weak in the faith and people that esteem one day above another. Uh, Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Some regard this day, some say they don't regard it. And he says something very interesting. He says in verse 8, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You nowhere in history are going to stand before pastors and elders and give an account of your life. If I called you and said, give me an account of your life, you have no responsibility to do that. It's happening all over this country. People are blindly walking in and saying, the pastor said this, so it must be the case. Folks, you better open your eyes. It's not new. It's what's been happening for a long time. Most of what's happening in your church-ridden scandals right now is abuse of power. Overreach. Unchecked. Paul, even in Romans, was saying, esteeming one another. Everything we do and say rises and falls to the master we answer to, which is Christ himself. Next week, we're going to deal with paragraph 8, which deals with the officers and the officers in the local church. How many officers are there? What are those offices? What is the purpose of those? Uh, Then even for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be dealing with that, about uh, the appointment and the work of pastors. What are they supposed to be doing? Uh, How are they supposed to be functioning? So we'll look forward to that together. All right. Uh, That's all for this morning. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. I appreciate you being here this morning. It's good to be back with all of you. And um, we're looking forward to uh, the summer and all that the Lord has for us. Uh, As many of you know, we began a series in the book of Revelation this past Wednesday. And uh, we're going to continue that each Wednesday until we're finished. Uh, So that could be quite a substantial amount of time. We're looking forward to that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can turn to the pages of Scripture and, Lord, to know your mind. I pray that you would give this church discernment, that we would know the will and the mind of our God, that we would not be tempted to do just what we deem best, to compromise and to structure things according to the world's pattern, but that we would follow the pattern of Scripture. And that we would establish not just this church, but that every church that is planted and established from here until our Lord's return would be established according to your word. Father, thank you for the power and the authority you have given the church. Thank you for how you've spelled it out of what that power and authority should be and what it should not be. And Lord, may Christ be glorified in each one of us today and in the days to come. For it's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.